Namaste and welcome to another edition of the Bharat Vartha Weekly. This was a long and interesting week. Plenty of things happened uh, this week. Uh, so with me, I have Ashish and Srivatsa, as always, uh, to discuss the news and events of the last week. Hi, Ashish. How are you doing? Hi, Kari. Doing well. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. Hi, Vatsa. Hi, Kari. How are you? Good, man. So we had plenty of things uh, uh, happen over the week, uh, but uh, let's just you know do a little bit of a rewind on the episodes that we put out. Uh, we put out a couple of uh, very interesting episodes, one on Kashmir, a year or so post uh, uh, Article 370, and then another on uh, post-COVID economic recovery. Uh, Ashish, uh, any particular instances in the Kashmir episode that kind of stood out for you? Yeah, I think the uh, passion with which Sunanda spoke, I mean, of course, she comes from that area and she has undergone some of the trauma which we read about or watch in documentaries or movies, etc. But hearing it from her uh, firsthand is always a very uh, uh, picking uh, picking kind of a experience where you really relate to uh, some of the issues and how these things have been, let's say, uh, pushed out. Uh, the discussions have never happened. Mm-hmm. And the, the justice has not been done in terms of whatever happened in the valley starting 1987-88. So, uh, yeah, very poignant type of an episode. But good to hear, also hear that she was quite positive about the changes which are happening since the abrogation. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she was very passionate. And uh, also, I think Srimoy uh, played a good foil to that. I mean, he was quite balanced and, uh, you know, he had a very good perspective to add as well. Uh, what's are the episode on uh, economic recovery? Uh, so reason for optimism? Yeah, Carrie. Uh, so I think uh, we'll talk about this in the weekly as well. Uh, there is uh, the, the numbers uh, across sectors seem to be looking better. So we can be optimistic. Uh, and it was uh, interesting to hear the views of, of both uh, Prathamesh and Nirav on this. Uh, because you know it was quite uh, data driven in that sense so they did they did a good job of analyzing uh, you know uh, the the economic recovery uh, to date and what things will look like going forward right all right guys so moving on to the first big item uh, this week of course i mean we had the uh, us presidential elections and uh, it was rocked by protests and fraud allegations so uh, uh, many different facets uh, on how the elections itself are unfolding. Uh, there are protests uh, brewing in different parts of the country. Uh, and amidst all of this uh, allegations of uh, mail fraud, uh, you know, Donald Trump accusing the Democrats of trying to steal the election. Uh, he's also cha- challenged the counting of the votes in many states uh, as such. Right. Uh, the voter turnout was pegged at 66.9%, the highest in 120 years, which is amazing. Um, so this is a battle that can have worldwide consequences, right? Um, so what do you think about the current, uh, state of affairs, uh, for the U S Ashish? Yeah. Um, the whole process seems to, I mean, of course the, the, the folks in U S defend the process saying that it's a very autonomous process, which gives empowerment at the lowest level, at the County level, uh, where, um, um, the, the, the locals decide how a process should run. But in this day and age, I mean, there could always be a separation between a empowered process versus the tools and technologies employed employed to render that process, right? So uh, it it seems a little anachronous uh, in in today's day and age, the way this whole thing has run. You might have heard how different people have been joking about even if their country is not the best or not the most ideal, their process works better than what's happening in the U.S., 
so I think that there's a, there's a larger issue here, which of course the, in the U.S. election, uh, the, I mean the the U.S. governments have to look to look at. I also feel that a lot of comments are uh, without uh, a very good context of how things work in the U.S. Simply because things are very autonomous, we don't know what the rules are for a county or for a state, right? So like the videos and the allegations which come out, uh, I think it's a little difficult to judge them sitting remotely. Uh, you know what what is the reference? Like for example, there are allegations that old voters have voted, but then maybe it's, there's a default date if the date of birth is not captured. You know stuff like that. So they, maybe there's an alternative uh, explanation. I, I have no idea. Uh, and I think it will, it will also differ from county to county, right? So what might be true of say Michigan may not be true of Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. So uh, I think that uh, those differences aside, I mean the, 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 there are certainly questions on the process itself. Uh, also shows how. The pollsters got it totally wrong. I think this seems like a worldwide phenomena that the entrenched intellectual slash media lobbies are completely unable to read the right side of the divide uh, of, of the political divide. It's happening in country after country, right? People have got Brexit wrong. They've got Indian elections wrong. They've got uh, uh, results. Uh, I mean, even even the sentiment in France wrong, uh, and now of course the U.S. election. So it was not a washout for President Trump, but uh, uh, he, uh, I mean. Directionally, the pollsters may have called it right, but but not to the extent that they thought the division was sharp. So I think there's also this larger issue of how narrative and uh, uh, statistical judgment are kind of uh, uh, colliding with each other, uh, which hopefully uh, those in the profession will 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 look at. But the larger uh, issue here is that the result will have an uh, have a bearing on on geopolitics uh, from an India's perspective. What investments does uh, President Biden makes in let's say? Uh, the the whole quad formulation, uh, his views on China will be very important for us. Uh, if he tries to, uh, uh, you know, like uh, play softball with China, they could. There's actually a real border threat for us in the coming months, maybe in the next springtime when when the snow melts. So I think all those issues will be will remain to be seen. And uh, I'm actually quite cautious about this. I I feel that his advisors and have, his strategists have come from a fairly Deep left side of the divide, uh, the the folks who ran the campaign and who were involved with the uh, whole strategy formulation, and I feel that uh, that could weigh in on the India relationship uh, uh, with with the Modi government. So not very optimistic, but uh, let's let's hope that the larger U.S. India sense prevails. I mean the the sense of uh, equal benefit prevails, and uh, uh, the the some of the good things which have happened in the last four five years continue. Right. So and just, carry a couple yeah. of things uh, i just add i think one is uh, you know this is i think probably the largest elections that that's been held uh, with a pandemic sort of hanging uh, over the whole election and you know no processes and the way things work normally uh, there was always going to be a bit of challenge you know with the us allowing mail in ballots and and so on uh, the the number of mail in ballots are higher so says that has worked for more than 200 years so even if things go go to the courts and so on uh, i think they have a mechanism in place to sort it all out uh, the other thing is while uh, you know donald trump may be on his way out the republican party has had definite gains in the congress and also this and they've held on to the senate which is a which is again uh, against popular prediction so i do hope that uh, you know somewhere there is some sense that prevails in the democratic party and they understand that their uh, you know 
very ultra left kind of agenda which uh, goes against israel india and all of that and how they uh, you know generally view economics and geopolitics that side of the party uh, might get sidelined uh, and a more sort of centrist and moderate side of the democratic uh, party comes through uh, i am slightly less uh, pessimistic than ashish in the sense that because of these results with the house and senate it won't be like a carte blanche for uh, biden and the left section of the democratic party right and uh, just to add uh, we got it right i mean uh, so we had Absolutely. a podcast on the us elections we called it for biden so rohit and uh, abhishek wherever you are thanks so much and uh, good work right so moving on uh, the npci which is the national payments commission of india caps uh, maximum uh, uh, transa- transactions per app at 30% uh, right now i think google pay and uh, phone pay account for about 40% of the market share paytm and mobiquick uh, capture around 20% of the market uh, this cap will be calculated based on the total volume of uh, transactions processed by the apps uh, during the pre- preceding 3 months on a rolling basis uh, i think if you remember we 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 said that the uh, upi uh, transactions would cross 2 billion uh, in october and they did right uh, so what do you think about this uh, change whatsa uh, so carry uh, in addition to you know the cap there has been another interesting development which is uh, whatsapp has been given uh, permission yeah. to you know launch its payment service through upi in india uh, and some people are sort of linking the two announcements uh, so the the thing is uh, there's not a lot of detail available uh, in terms of how it will actually work out they have said that uh, it will you know come down over a period of time and be capped at 30% uh it i mean to if you think of it uh, theoretically it makes sense that you don't want the monopoly and so on but uh, practically how it will be implemented is a big challenge so for instance uh, i mean you will need people to actually have multiple upi apps on their phone because if one of the apps hits the 30% sort of benchmark then they'll need to switch to another app and people may or may not want to do that uh, and how that helps in itself uh, is is not clear and it's not like we have a monopoly situation right now we have a number of players who are, who are you know providing upi services so uh, instead of you know trying to intervene and set limits i think the npci should let the markets play out uh because anyway uh, you know uh, banks or these third party apps uh, they're not making money out of upi as of today exactly. uh they're not allowed to you know charge an mdr like you could for a credit card so in the sense it's a free service and on top of that you want to restrict the number of transactions that can happen through a particular app uh it's it's not really the best decision uh, having said that uh, the npci has clearly said that the sop will be rolled out after you know discussing with all the players so we should wait to see how exactly some of these things play out uh, instead of jumping and saying that oh it will be bad or it will be good or you know whatever yeah, yeah no i think we definitely have to wait it out right uh, because uh, there are some discussions pending and npci has been amazing right in terms of how they're working with all the ecosystem players 
but yeah, if this comes through, I think we might see some of the smaller players capture more of the market, right? Uh, all right. Uh, moving on. So we had some optimistic uh, uh, hues on the economic front, right? Uh, the industry body PhD uh, PhD CCI expects a 7.7 percent growth in GDP during 2021-2022. Uh, this prediction was made upon an analysis of 25 high-frequency economic indicators. Uh, we also discussed a few of them on the economic recovery podcast we did last week. Uh, a Jeffrey's Financial Group Inc. Uh, uh, model tracking economic recovery this week showed activity in India is already at 93% of pre-COVID levels. Uh, however, bad debt was mentioned to be a hindrance to the recovery of the economy. Ashish and Vatsa, I'm sure both of you have thoughts on this. Uh, I'll come to Ashish first. Uh, what do you make of this? Yeah, we've been discussing this in our episodes uh, as well as on the weekly uh, itself, Carrie, right? So uh, several high-frequency indicators have turned quite positive in the last, let's say, month or so. Uh, you know, we, we saw the digital payments picking up. We spoke about it, about 18 17% growth uh, year-on-year uh, over September last year uh, was observed. We had the highest uh, selling months for uh, uh, Hero Honda and sorry, uh, Hero Motors and for uh, Bajaj Auto. Bajaj. Uh, their their best months ever uh, uh, in terms of monthly sales. Uh, the even the toll tax toll collections have improved uh, via fast tag. So I mean, there's more movement on the highways. Generally, even movement on the highways is a good indication of how the uh, supply chains are working, and it, that seems to be picking up as well. Uh, manufacturing PMI is now uh, highest in a decade. Uh, the September PMI came in at, sorry, the October PMI came in at 58.9, uh, which, which was higher in the September reading as well and highest in, in, in 10 years. Uh, eBay bills, uh, which are generated, uh, again, we had the highest number of eBay bills generated in October, uh, which kind of mirrors the toll collection statistic. And even on the consumption side, for example, like the Surat, uh, uh, the, the diamond bores, uh, saw like a 725% increase in exports uh, over the previous, uh, I mean, in the in the April October period. Uh, oh, sorry, in the uh, in the in the October month, which, which where the exports had declined in the April October period earlier. So the uh, overall the indicators seem quite positive. Uh, again, the the question is, uh, I mean, is it sustainable? That is one part because this is also the festive season. October was Navratri, and then we will have uh, Diwali coming up this month. So. Uh, that, that is that is one question whether whether it is going to continue after that. So like what happens in like in the post January period that is that is one question. The second point is that uh, are there different speeds at which uh, the recovery is moving? So maybe some parts of the economy is moving uh, are moving faster, or they are recovering faster. So maybe the services industry, the the some of the more consumption related items have done well, but. Maybe at the lower end, the wage inequality is increasing. The demand destruction has left has also caused small businesses to shut down. Um, and do we have the right tools and uh, the methods to reach out to these sections of society in terms of sustained relief? So, I mean, of course, the government uh, took the immediate measures of giving free food grains and extending cheap loans to various segments of society. But then how long can that sustain and what is the turnaround time needed for them to really uh, uh, bounce back? Uh, so those questions linger. I think this year, this financial year, we should, uh, I mean, there's not much hope in terms of uh, obviously a growth, uh, a, a positive GDP growth, but how the Q4 fares, I think that would be the right indication of whether it's a real, all these are real bounce backs or some of it is just pent up demand catching up. Right. 
right what's up uh so carry uh, i think ashish has covered a lot of important points uh i am also pretty optimistic about the economy in general i think uh, you know we are already uh, you know running at uh, probably 95% of you know trade outlets and so on being open uh, we have uh, and there hasn't been a spike in uh, infections for covid i think that's the that's the big uh, bearish factor that i can think of uh, going ahead uh, if we again see a spike where we start hitting 75 80 or even more thousand cases a day uh, that's when again there'll be pressure uh, in terms of you know locking down the economy and that can adversely affect the economy uh, but overall uh, that doesn't seem to be the case and india is one of the few countries that is you know in further stage when it comes to a development of a vaccine for covid uh, which which will be critical i think uh, by all accounts it does look like by q1 of the next year that is the jan to march quarter we should have a vaccine that is you know ready for uh, deployment so that uh, again will 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 only help the economy uh, the only other worry uh, that uh, i can think of is that inflation has kind of reared its head again uh, thanks to you know the high uh, food prices especially that of essential vegetables uh, which again uh, i think is temporary so there should be downward pressure on uh, you know prices of uh, vegetables which will bring down inflation because we've had a fairly good monsoon which is higher than the long term average uh, uh, you know uh, so overall uh, i think all the indicators look good the government has done its bit you know making sure that the rural part of india and people who are not so well off get cash directly in their bank accounts and you know they can buy food grains and so on uh, and industry will pick up i i think uh, once we have the vaccine and we i i feel fairly confident that we should not have a very big second phase uh, touch wood of uh, of covid in- infections so overall i think uh, it it it's it looks uh, you know far more positive than maybe a couple of months ago yeah so this point about pent up demand versus something more structural right i think uh, we discussed this uh, you know fairly nuanced way on the podcast itself i'd encourage all of you to go check it out um you know i think some of the smaller ticket purchases also have gone up in fact i think itc results came out today the fmcg business has grown up grown by 15% or so right uh, all right so moving on um the coastal shipping bill draft uh, uh, has been open to public suggestions now the shipping ministry has uh, uh has asked the public for suggestions the bill aims to create a separate legislation on coastal shipping which is an integral part of the transport chain uh the bill proposes to scrap the requirement for trading licenses for indian flag vessels it also suggests an integration of coastal transport uh with inland waterways uh india seems to be trying to solidify its position on worldwide manufacturing and shipping uh ashish uh, this will become imperative going forward right yeah this is quite interesting actually and it's a little uh, uh concerning that india hasn't explored this before uh given the vast coastline which we have and there are several ports on the on both the western and the eastern coasts and uh, i mean in, inland waterways yes we started of course a few years ago and now we do have some operational uh, routes uh, uh in nw1 uh, on on the, on the on the ganga and then of course several northeast routes are also opened up now via bangladesh 
but this uh, the coastal shipping we have not really explored as much as we should have um the cost of coastal shipping is very low it's like typically 20 paise per ton kilometer compa uh, compared to railways which is at 1.2 1.5 let's say rupees per ton kilometer the road uh, road shipping is even costlier but we have always opted for transportation or via roads which is uh, not very logical for a country like india so a good movement also what happens is that it allows government to look at establishing coastal economic zones uh, this is what has really propelled the chinese growth now of course given that uh, our coastal areas are abutted by western and eastern ghats there'll be several environmental concerns about what we can establish and what not but even if it is not really the, even if the seas zeds are not on the coast itself but let's say on in the in the states on, on in in the in, uh, in the interior territory with access to the ports even that would be good enough so uh, i think the whole premise uh, of of coastal shipping uh, opens up a lot of possibilities the the bill also says that the priority will be given to indian uh, ships with indian flag they don't they will not need any permits to uh, uh, undertake any transportation of goods and the foreign uh, flag ships if they want to uh, also undertake this activity they will have to buy vessels made in india or basically have certain registration process so all in all this could be a fairly big boost to the way transportation is carried out and it might free up the roads for uh, better uh, let's say you know public movement uh, uh, around the country coupled this with the dfcs i mean you know think of think about how how something will move from say punjab to let's say uh, odisha right today all of that is on road but with the dfcs in place you can move uh, you know uh, the goods on let's say uh, trains between uh, punjab and say jnpt which is a port where uh, there'll be a dfc access and then on on ship between uh, the west coast and the east coast and that could be actually much uh, cheaper in terms of per unit cost as well so i think some of these possibilities open up uh, for better inland trade itself i mean of course it will also boost exports um, but but certainly will also improve the efficiency of our own domestic trade right fantastic uh, so we'll move on from this uh, the registration uh, requirements for bpo and it enabled uh, services has been reduced uh, these guidelines uh, focus on removing unnecessary bureaucratic restrictions and promote ease of doing business uh, uh, the guidelines help companies adopt work from home and work from anywhere policies uh, of course it services and it industry has been doing well uh they include waiving requirements uh, uh, for deposit of bank guarantees static ip addresses publication of uh, uh network diagrams and more uh was was talking to a senior banking uh, leader last week and uh, you know he happened to mention that feet on street have become fingers on screen right now right so there's been a key shift in financial services uh, for sure right uh what's a, i'll come to you for some quick reactions and then ashish can add yeah sure carry uh so uh you know the underlying philosophy behind you know all the rules and regulations that you mentioned was that uh, voice calls uh, voice and data calls had to be segregated so in that sense that uh, you know voice calls in a bpo or what are what are referred to as osps should not mingled with should not mingle with voice over ip calls uh, that that take place through the data network and uh, you know this this is a this is a very legacy kind of issue in especially in today's world because you know a lot of times we just 
we don't really differentiate between the two if you are unable to reach someone on phone you just give that person a whatsapp call so the, those lines have been you know completely blurred so those regulations they made sense uh, you know maybe 10 15 years ago uh, but they really don't make sense today uh, plus you had all these onerous regulations that you mentioned you know of uh, having an epabx machine in india uh and then you have to register for each entity separately you have to file network diagrams and all of it just added to the uh, compliance burden so what has been done with this uh with this uh, reform uh, is that uh, all of these requirements most of them have been done away with uh so international uh, bpos for instance can host their epabx machine overseas and only the call records they need to be uh, made available in india uh, similarly there was a huge amount of bank guarantee that was needed to be paid for each seat by bpos and i think that's one thing people don't realize uh, when they are when uh, you know when you are dealing with the government uh, it's it's not just you know the rules and regulations the amount of money that you need to put up as deposits uh you know in the name of compliance they they itself can hit your cash flow pretty hard because that money is then you know locked up with the government it doesn't earn any interest uh but you still have to provide for it either from you know cash from operations or you know your money that you could have invested elsewhere and so on so uh, overall uh, i think uh, it's it's a very good move uh, in the sense that compliance burdens have gone down uh, and companies can focus on you know their core business and also because the regulation earlier was so broad it was kind of used to harass uh, especially uh, some of the smaller bpos and so on uh, so for instance uh, if you if you used if you had two subsidiaries and this was you know a decade or so ago if you had two subsidiaries and they shared a you know voice network uh, over voip it would be considered as a breach of compliance and you know someone could end up in jail for that uh, and it was routinely used to harass uh, companies by uh, by you know over exuberant uh, bureaucrats so overall good move but i think probably next they should look at uh, scz regulations which in itself as you know ashish would also agree are quite onerous themselves uh, in terms of compliance and also very very impractical in in the way they have been drafted can i just one comment here uh, i think this will also spur this can potentially spur the growth of uh, let's say the services delivered remotely in the areas of say education or i mean teaching coaching all of that the reason is that uh, today i mean these things can still be done remotely but uh, these are not very organized in nature if you were to create a small company of 10 15 people then you would run into some of the issues which patsa talked about in terms of you know putting up a uh, i mean taking some dot permissions take putting up a bank guarantee and so on individually of course you can sit at your home and still do it but if you need to create a scale and package it in a in a meaningful way uh, there would be a lot of issues in terms of how do you deal with the government also the requirements of maintaining hardware software in a you know in, in a bonded sense bonded warehouse sense where you have to uh keep track of some of those assets because they're used for uh, exports and so on uh it it, it would it, it would uh, it would theoretically limit mobility i mean of course people would probably be bypassing all this any which way but uh, 
Mm-hmm. Now there are no longer any restrictions on some of these uh, uh, other areas also. So as such, uh, fairly fairly good uh, forward-looking view for what for an industry. I mean, as as I think Rajiv has spoken about this in one of the previous yeah, video, but when 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 the five G really hits the market, some of these services can see a very sharp uh, uptake uh, from India. So this is like in advance of that happening. We are still two three years away, definitely at the minimum. Right. So uh, it's it's a it's a good decision in advance. Yeah. No. Uh, Rajiv spoke about this as well on the Geo episode and you know a couple of podcasts before. When that next wave of virtualization happens, uh, we got to be you know in a position to capture some of that value, right? So. Yeah. All right, guys. So that's a wrap of uh, you know all of the news and events. We're on to episodes next week and a couple of exciting episodes coming up. We have uh, one. Uh, which sort of compares and contrasts the legacy of uh, Sardar Patel, Pandit Nehru, and uh, Ambedkar ji, right? Uh, Ashish, uh, quick thoughts on that? Uh, yes, quite uh, quite a esoteric topic, I would say. Uh, I think three uh, three pillars of India's uh, modern democracy and how the country has really been shaped up since the independence. And it would be good to hear a comparative view of how their legacies are today. reflected in our public discourse and uh, you know how their contributions can be evaluated in the in the hindsight and i think both harsh and abhinav who will be talking about this have uh, written a, uh, written a lot about about this uh, topic in their various columns etc so really looking forward to this episode right you'll also be hosting a discussion with shankar ayer on the gated republic right yes we record that soon uh, i have read the book very uh, it's a fascinating book i wrote a review of the sansvaraj as well the uh, shankar speaks about how uh, things which are taken for granted uh, like like healthcare or security etc have not been take, had not been available to general public in india very easily over the years and what is how, how the political process has failed and things have changed now in the last few years but how how it has failed uh, the people how the state has failed the people over a period of time i think that's a very interesting premise so really look forward to having to having this conversation with him uh, and uh, i have i mean we had discussed this even as he, even he, when he was writing the book so i do have some of his uh, thought process as well so hoping to cover some of that when when we speak fantastic all right uh, so that's a wrap from us uh, this week uh, thank you for again uh, you know watching this uh, weekly uh will be available for any questions that you might have uh, on the on the youtube channel uh, feel free to shoot our uh, shoot out uh, comments and suggestions as well uh so until next time please stay safe take care and it's a goodbye from ashish watsa and myself thank you bye thank you thank you